0: This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 22 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. Our guest this episode is Mr. Peter Vitesi. Like a lot of our guests, Peter's had an incredibly varied career, from playing with Jethro Toll and Simple Minds, to co-writing, arranging and producing songs with a vast array of artists, including Heather Small, Julian Lennon and Annie Lennox. It's getting to be a bit of a cliche on this show, but Peter is a prolific, busy and erudite keyboard player that has some brilliant insights. I know I enjoyed this interview and I think you will too. Enjoy. Peter, can't thank you enough for joining us. I know it's uh, middle of the day and uh, a nice summer day
1: it's a gorgeous summer day here in fact it's um you know we it's incredibly hot i do believe it might be over 33 uh, degrees um so anyway but it's lovely to join you but- in this uh glorious weather
0: and that is hot for the UK and um, we did talk before the show between my Australian accent that I constantly get feedback on from our listeners and and your lovely Scottish accent I'm looking forward to a fun 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 episode
1: Um, yes um. it's
0: it's part of the fun so um, I thought we just might start off with a question we've asked the last few episodes in that that is given the challenging times we are all going through internationally how are you keeping busy um, over these past few months
1: um it's a it's an interesting question i, I i've i've tried i've tried to answer some of my friends um, um in this way especially my friends who are fellow students and as i mentioned to you earlier in, in my philosophy uh, studies as um i what i'm what i miss is the at least, perception of free will that's the um, uh, that comes with a certain kind of dynamism and vitality when you can perceive that you have free will when there's a some kind of restriction or some kind of threat. Um, uh, you know, it's obviously uh, it's wise for us to, uh, um, you know, to go into some kind of lockdown. But then I go on to uh, often say, well, I've been in lockdown essentially for about four years now um, <laughs> because uh, largely I, I work largely from home. I have a studio at home and um, I, I, some some of the projects that I do are unattended um, and can be conducted in a... Uh, Tinterweb kind of a kind of way, but um, uh, I, how I'm—I I don't necessarily keep busy because it's um, that suggests that um, that has a suggestion that uh, when I'm not when I'm not doing this i'm not busy um i have um i i like to say that um the american astronauts in the um at least the first phase the first seven the so called mercury 7 used to uh, used to say to one another when asked how they were they would say i'm maintaining an even strain um <laughs> so the the busyness is um is is what you make of your life uh, I, I i do believe so i've i've been constantly uh doing things manifesting even if it's for fun i did um for instance i did uh, at the beginning of lockdown we a, a few years ago we got a little doggy um phoebe who's a border terrier and, of course, um, I, I, I started to sing songs to Phoebe. Um, There's a little dog called Phoebe and so on and so forth. And um, so at the beginning of lockdown, I, I did a whole album uh, of songs that were about Phoebe, all these silly songs that I did, but also I included in my head um, the arrangements that that um, came out, uh, which, in for instance, um, one of them, which is uh, There Is Naughtiness In This Room, which is one of the (laughs) titles of the song. And um, somehow it came out like a kind of a Western uh, thing. It had a harmonica in it and it had... So I did a whole track with this kind of, and the 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 tune goes: there is naughtiness in this room, but there is beauty in this room, and so it goes on like this. So uh, uh, that was one way of me to occupy the um, the the constant throughput of musical ideas that um, the, uh, that that uh, lockdown. Um, Seem to engender.
0: And will so this I, I, will this ever be released, from... Peter? So will that no, ever be? No. There's a lot of dog no. lovers out there.
1: That's right, but of course it's it's dedicated to Phoebe. By the way, she's uh, wholly unimpressed, which is um, <laughs> which is of course a a, a, a standard uh, a standard response to most of my musical output. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: funny. So let let's start off, Peter, with a bit of a potted history of you um, at the beginning. So. Um, Your biography is relatively well known in that you started very young, but i just love to hear about how you started out in music and and particularly your initial stuff. uh, It's something that's, well, mostly faded away, those brilliant big band nights and stuff, particularly in the UK and to some extent in Australia. just would love to hear more about how that got you started and and your memories of that.
1: Uh, Yeah, well... um uh, I, I like to say um, th- th- there are pros and cons uh, to this. I, I think, David. Um, I say I was a musician before I decided to become a musician. You know, the the decision. You know, you often hear. Uh, you know, the stories go that and and some. You know, something uh, crucial or some kind of epiphany. Uh, occurred where somebody decided uh, at that point you know because they heard you know Cannonball Adderley or something to become a musician but i'd actually I, I was actually a musician before i was able to able to make that choice i i had i had no choice and if i had no choice <laughs> i'm not morally responsible um so um, um uh, w- my father was a big band saxophone player this is uh, quite well known in the Brecon. that's Brecon in angus uh, which is about uh, twenty miles north of Dundee in Scotland, and um, he being um, the my father's on my father's side of the family, they were Italians. My mother was Scottish, but uh, they were Italians. And during the war, the Italians had uh, some difficulty, as you might uh, as you might imagine. Um, my father, for instance, was arrested um, uh, whilst fighting on. Um, in the british army um but churchill had decided to lock the italians up and intern them um with the um, um with the german uh jews in the isle of man and when my father came back and his brothers came back they they uh formed a concert party uh one way or another to in in order to assimilate and um uh, and be part of the um uh, you know the brechen a very small town be part of that society and, uh, you know, uh, become integrated. And so it started really as a concert party. And my earliest memories of playing with my dad uh, was when I would play uh, with the concert party, which is my dad and his brothers, all of whom were musicians. And um, and my Uncle Abby. in fact, it was a very, very clear memory of my Uncle Abby Uh, Transforming from a shopkeeper uh, during the day to in the evening, entertaining the um, the the patients of Stracathro Hospital by dressing up with a bowl of fruit on his head uh, (laughs) and a very uh, flowery um, dress, and uh, coming on as Carmen Miranda and singing um, uh, South American way. Uh, Of course, it was, um, and and this was music that uh, that didn't have any uh meaning for uh for me at the time i must have been even at that time i could play uh quite well by the time i was six or, or seven polyphonically and i was able to you know I understood a lot about chords and altered chords by then and um but by the time i was six seven eight and witnessing um uncle abby and uh uncle jimmy uh doing these these kinds of songs <clears throat> they had no meaning to me. But what I, I understand now, and all of this is perhaps, you know, hindsight 2020 or revisionist, is that they, they absolutely anchored my, they grounded my understanding of the beauty of music in harmony. Um And um, I loved, I, I loved the harmony of, of that age and uh, it enabled me via my dad's, uh musicianship and stuff to be able to to uh, at least if if it didn't mean much to me uh, it it meant a lot later on you know mm-hmm. so but if it didn't mean much to me right at that time it sure meant a lot later and um that's never that's never mm-hmm. left me the the beauty of of the harmony of the age the longing of those songs the just the beauty of them mm-hmm. I, I think um that's never left me and that's my um that was my father's um, uh, gift, um, uh, to me. However, my, um, my eldest brother and I, um, talk about there were differences between, uh, my experience of my father and my eldest brother, uh, Joey, um, which is my eldest brother, um, who now, who went on to be a, a brilliant, um, um, educator, school teacher, and, um, geography master but um he, he he was i think made to play saxophone by my father and um when uh, when joy was playing in a section uh, my father would say right get up stand up and take a chorus which is you know the mm-hmm. old fashioned speak for stand up and improvise over these changes whatever it would be a, a jazz tune or a standard and um and joy in his head he just heard my father hates me because he, he yeah. couldn't do it. He couldn't improvise. He was a good reader, but he couldn't improvise. Uh, 20 years later, when my dad would say, right, take a chorus. And I go, oh, my dad loves me yeah. because <laughs> b- because he knows I'm just going to tear the living daylights out of this. And in fact, my father and I um, had great uh, difficulty with one another latterly because... I would want to. I would want to take chorus after chorus after chorus <laughs> to get stuff going, and he was trying to stop me and and couldn't, and and I wouldn't stop, you know. And, and being a, a, a rebellious uh, teenager at that point, it, it got ugly at times yeah <laughs> at very least.
0: But that's that's an amazing story. as you said, you, you didn't initially love it by any means and it is a bit like most families. You, you were working in the family business and in your case it was music and it was the yep. harmony that you loved. So and I know in another oh, yeah. interview you've said you still see um, playing the piano as your primary form of creative expression. What, what is right. it that went from working in the family business, so to speak, to having that real love for the piano? What, what was the next step for you that led to that?
1: um let me see it's 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 complex it's now so it's now it's now absolutely integrated into my being Mm -hmm. the so when i was uh, i was about four years old and um they had in the house um pedal organ and Mm -hmm. my uncle williams piano and when I went, when I was four, I, I, I can remember, I, I you know, you can see, and I can witness most kids go up to piano. And when I play piano with children around, they'll bang about. But when I went up to the piano, there was, I, I felt an instant, um, you know, it, it sounds so hokey, doesn't this connection? <laughs> I felt affinity, I felt um, a lovely symbiosis beginning to take place where, uh, the first thing i did was play a chord the chord was a c triad of course <laughs> but i i i i quickly i quickly um, you know moved up the scale so that you you'd get c major d minor e minor f major and uh the b minor with the flat 5 and um i wondered about that for so long this is before i went to piano lessons and i wondered about this b minor flat 5 and um you know preceding the the you know covering the octave and uh, and at times it would uh, I and you know this thing of um, if if we arrive on Earth with any anything, if if you you know there's two ways of expressing this at, at very least. there's a nativist account, for instance, in the acquisition of language. There's a nativist account which suggests this is Noam Chomsky uh, that suggests there's something pre-existing uh, uh, a neurological, Uh, or a psychological uh, module that acquires language and is able to discern in Mm -hmm. the booming buzzing of the environment that discerns and picks out language, um, you know, and the principles of language uh, known as universal grammar. And um, the same is true, uh, uh, or you could, I I should say that the other other view is empiricist, which is, uh, you know, we're born with a blank slate, And uh, then all of this is is learned via experience. Mm. Um, But I I tend to um, go along with the nativist view because I picked out principles uh, of music making that weren't taught, uh, that weren't simply experiential. They they, they coincided with something that, that you may now regard as having an opinion about what's good or bad. And uh, I I can I can remember, as I say, pondering the B minor flat five in that in that triad um, and why on occasions it was nice and why on occasions it was horrid. And I realized it was horrid when it was used in ignorance uh, and it was lovely when somebody used it with purpose Mm. or uh, with with something that connoted an understanding of, of its existence. Rather than simply a, a mechanical function.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating um, insight, and and just even that, you know, working your way through the chords at that age. And so, once once you you'd played with your your family, what what was your first gig outside of the family? Do you recall?
1: Um, outside of the family, well, my my fam- that time we're talking the very early sixties, mm. and now um, and. My, for instance, I I have to just um, digress slightly because it, it, it leads on from the previous point. Um, if you've ever seen Rick Beato, um, oh, yeah. who I think is a um, I think is great, and um, his son, uh, you know, um, it, it, you know, quite phenomenal. And um, his 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 son at eight years old was identifying notes and in the harmony and uh, uh, singing them and uh, and naming them. Well, I my family didn't know what to do with that, but my dad did say things like, um, uh, you know, name, you know, name this chord, crunch, you know, a cluster chord, or, um, or, uh, uh, or for instance, he would do something that I call pitch memory, which is. Uh, you know, one week he would press the horn on his Fiat 500, and then <laughs> um, two weeks would elapse, and he would say, "Now, bef- before I press it again, sing me the note." And I go do, and he press the horn Duh, and he go, "How do you do that?" And uh, and and it's a little bit like um, uh, the scene in um, uh, what's that? Dustin Hoffman. Oh, Rain right, um, Man. Rain Man. When the when the matches spill and he goes 300 or what, whatever yeah. it is, is that there's. There's, uh, I'm not, I don't have a tone in my head, I, 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 I'm calling it pitch memory. I have a, a memory that that is, like the the idea of uh, about to speak a sentence as if as if you knew what the sentence was going to be somehow. Um, except it's not expressed, uh, you know, in you know verbal, mm. you know, physical uh, way. Uh, I knew what the the I knew what it was, but I personally think in my case it's uh, pitch memory, a good one. It's not infallible, um, uh, uh, but it's but it's a very good one. So it leads on to when I when uh, my first gig because outside of outside of dad's uh, you know the the bosom of my family and my family really didn't know what to do about somebody that that could that could evince this uh, talent or skill or whatever you call it and um uh the only thing they could think of doing with me is put me in talent competitions. And I think I've spoken about this on the uh, on, on the internet before. It's one of my first, not that it's important, but one of my first little descriptions of coming up through this talent competition I was entered into in Air Butlins in Air, in Scotland. And uh, I got through to the final, but I was beaten in the final. And in the final, I was playing for the benefit of Mr. Kite, from uh, um, which, from uh, you know, one of the the more obscure cuts cuts from um, Sgt. Pepper album. So this would be about '67, and um, and I, I was playing for the benefit of Mr. Kite and segueing into a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore song called Goodbye, and uh, I thought I was unbeatable on this on this basis because I could play, I could sing, I, it was all great, and I got thoroughly, absolutely thrashed by this this kid that was um, about a year or two younger than me but he dressed as a baby and he came (laughs) on and sang um, a a largely tuneless version everybody has a baby that's why I'm in love with you pretty baby and he he thrashed me and um uh, you know from that point um that point on i've i've understood that there are there are other aspects to the communication of music that are clearly important to some people but that leads that leads me to the idea of pure music versus the idea of music as entertainment and um that's a big long
0: discussion. yeah that's yeah that's another couple of episodes <laughs> right.
1: That's a couple of episodes, but that was my that was my experience. It was a sour experience for me, and I I, I haven't wanted it to to weigh heavily on my mind, but it, has, it probably has <laughs> for, for for five or six decades. And um, it's it that was the that was the first experience outside the bosom of my family where where it became where it became obvious that the 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 skill or the talent or whatever it was was in the real world was was going to be um was going to be on occasion an advantage and on others a disadvantage
0: mm. yeah that's another great point point. and I mean for you when did that real world experience with music start like did you essentially leave school and go straight into music or you were doing other things alongside it
1: the whole thing was really, I suppose, decided for me um, by my father. I, I I'd always been a musician since I was four. I, I was a, a part-time schoolboy and a full-time musician mm-hmm. from about four, really. Is is the explanation of playing in bands, dad's band, my brother-in-law's band, my brother's band, rock bands, jazz bands from about twelve twelve onwards. Um, you know that. I'd, I just played all the time, all all music, um, and all gratefully, and, and Scottish country dance bands as well. I I played, and that was great fun playing mm-hmm. with uh, the great champion uh, accordion player Jim McHardy, um, and that's something because he was a, a button key accordion player, quite an extraordinary thing, you know, sook and blow, as they call it, you know, it's the the when you blow the note, it's one note, and when you and when yeah. you. Pull the thing out. It's another note. So it's it's, it's two notes per key, I and mean, right. it's quite extraordinary their the capability. But um, the whole my whole um, the whole thing for me was pretty much it was my father that made it uh, uh, no alternative. And and the first occasion when when he offered me no alternative was when I was languishing in my my bed. I was about. Sixteen or seventeen, I was languishing in my bed at midday, and um, uh, <clears throat> the the an army careers uh, caravan had pulled up in the middle of Brecon uh, town centre, and Dad dragged me across the road to uh, to enlist in the army. Uh, uh, by good fortune, uh, certainly at that time, um, the army were unwilling to sign up anybody that was already crying. <laughs> and um, so, so, <laughs> so, so I, I dare say I didn't pass muster, but Dad kicked me out of the house. That was the first of I think three leaving leaving home at the end of my father's shoe. Uh, and um, I did actually manage to get a job. My first job was organ demonstrator at uh, Larg's, the music shop in Montrose, and I demonstrated organ organs there until. Uh, uh, organs uh, even then so wouldn't there, would that be about 73 thereabouts um organs began began to be um started to move from you had to play the whole thing yourself to auto accompaniment yeah. things and um, then they became less attractive to be but but more attractive to um uh, uh, you know the casual That's right. player and so on so um uh and then father moved uh, down to near Edinburgh and, um, I, I tried to look after his businesses. He had a, a business, several shops, um, in Dundee and, uh, Forfar. Um, I had a shop in, <laughs> in Blair selling, um, um, clothes, but I was hopeless at it. I was, I was just hopeless. And, um, so, uh, I, when I was about eighteen. Dad uh, kicked me out of the house again, um, this time to go and uh, play keyboards um, down at the Lacarno Ballroom in Bristol for strict temp- tempo dancing, like um, with the Billy Cahoon Ensemble, um, which played uh, on the other side of the, s- the stage from a you know um, a revolving stage oh, yeah. from um, Tommy Sampson's big band. And uh, I suppose it was another exposure to the, the joys of the big band. And I you know worked my way into the uh, various bigger band ensembles um as a result of that i mean i got the sack from um uh from the lucarno ballroom for um i think it was for rehearsing during during the daylight hours uh with an with another band in the, uh, and uh, so i was sacked went back home and the next time that dad kicked me out was to uh, go down and uh, uh, ad- audition for a, a band called Jethro Tull. Right. Um, that's the next time. And actually, I left, I did leave the door of one Abbotsford Rise in Livingston near Edinburgh. I left the door uh, at the end of my father's shoe. I can remember that distinctly. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness. Um, he, he, he insisted that if I was that smart, then I go and prove it. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, and, and I've singularly failed to do that anyway. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, by Peter, by the mid the early to mid seventies, which sounds like that is, I mean, so your dad was either very aware of Jethro Tull because they were obviously um, doing extremely well at that stage, um, or he just yeah. was a band and he decided you needed to go and audition for them.
1: No, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't that. It was that I I had been playing in the Leering uh, pub in uh edinburgh with my great friend mike travis who was who had returned from at the time returned from london as a you know a session player and a brilliant drummer and he was in a band called gilgamesh mm-hmm. and he and i used to do a duo gig at the uh lyric pub in edinburgh in fact i wrote down we um we used to our opening number was um we would play um uh the man in the was the man in the green hat which is on the weather report album tail spinning oh yeah uh, tail spinning, and we would play that as the opening track to the bemused punters in the uh, Lee rig. I, I mean, I can't imagine, uh, you know, how alien that must have sounded, but um, they, they, they seemed to enjoy it anyway. Um, but um, I, I digress. What happened was Mike came in one night and he had a, a, a melody maker, which was the rock newspaper mm. of the time. And in the back of that, there was an advert that said international rock band require keyboard player. And he said, Mike said to me, you should you should apply for this. And well, I did. And um, it just so happened I was playing with another band, RAF, which which was an acronym for rich and famous, neither of which they were. (laughs) Uh, But we were doing a gig in the Marquee Club in, uh, in London, one gig and I invited Ian Anderson and um, Martin Barr and Dave Pegg of Jethro Tull of the lineup at the time to come and see me play. And then they invited me to audition for Jethro Tull. And um, when when they when they contacted my parents to or the management of Jethro Tull contacted my parents saying, uh, you know, uh, can Peter come down to audition? Um, it was my dad that said, right, uh, out. Go and get, you know, go and get this right. job. And um, he didn't know uh, Jethro Tull from a, a hole in the wall. No, that's um, I'd assume
0: So I just thought, yeah, that was an interesting, yeah. yeah.
1: That's right. But he, but, but it probably to my father. It also represented um, a moment where he could get short of this recalcitrant, um, <laughs> uh, self-proclaimed genius, and uh, you know, get short of uh, all of his kids once and for all, and enjoy you know what he had left of his um uh, retirement years and um I, I was very grateful when uh after auditioning uh amongst many uh but on the final day of auditions with jethro till ian anderson sent the the rest of the band out and asked me you know puffing away on the pipe layer of strathair okay. style. tell me peter do you want do you want to do the gig and i've got yes of course and he said well of course You'll have to you'll have to get a bit of uh, publishing because you've been you've been playing so tune bits of tunes. I like that, and we'll do some of that on the next album, which was going to be uh, Broadsword and the Beast. Okay, yep. And um, I, and I didn't know what publishing mm. was, and he said, and then you come on tour, and then he offered me what uh, what would be an, uh, the most extravagant uh, um, amount of money per week to go on tour with Jethro Tull, and um, and Ian definitely uh, changed the the course of my existence. Mm-hmm. That's for sure, for which I'm eternally grateful. Um, interestingly enough, a few days ago, a, a Jethro Tull fan that um, that uh, that I speak to on Facebook just published um not published, but just showed me um a, a piece in the uh, book. I think it's a, a book or something, a biography of Jethro Tull um called the ballad of jethro tull and it's um it's ian you know trying to explain what why i was so unpopular amongst the jethro tull fans um uh which in print doesn't look particularly nice <laughs> but i know that uh ian would be saying this in jest and um so i, I went on to do um uh, broadsword and the beast with jethro tull toured the world with them then went on to work with ian on his so-called uh solo album walk mm. into light and that extended on into doing uh an album called under wraps with jethro tull and it was about midway through the making of that album that i i understood that um that my tenure um in jethro tull uh was doing neither jethro tull nor myself any good yeah. um uh so uh, i i already decided to uh, to move on and um, at the end of the the last tour I did with um, Jethro Tull uh, I was I received a telegram from Jeff Beck's management asking if I would like to go and join the the Jeff Beck band mm-hmm. of the time uh, which I did but uh, sadly it was to do a tour um, that was in support of his album Flash at the time. And Jeff wasn't very keen on the album, and uh, th- the whole thing kind of fizzled out. Right. But by that time, I was... Um, this is a, a really potted history. By that time, I'd I'd started to do sessions with... Um, I wanted to do every kind of music mm. humanly feasible, uh, you know, everything, and present myself into, uh, you know, those areas that were both unsuitable for me and things that I thought I could do. And, you know, I had to push to uh, to do heavy reading uh, gigs, like when I, I I did Richard Niles' Bandzilla, which was the, the house band for the, the Ruby Wax TV uh, oh, yeah. programme. That was heavy, you know, every Friday a new chart, heavy. Richard is an awesome writer, but it was hard to get through. And then combine that with um, doing sessions that were uh, with... You know, within my uh, understanding and, and taste, um, you know, but just, just do a, 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 just everything that I could, not from any sense of greed or avarice, but through wanting to experience a very yeah. youthful
0: yeah, desire approach. isn't it and yeah, yeah and so the self-proclaimed genius as you, you your dad or, or you I was
1: I was never yeah. self-proclaimed I was a, I, I was just um that was a projection of what my dad, dad probably was saying, thought yeah, gotcha. I thought I was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and so w- when you actually
0: that. no that's and I'm not certainly not getting that impression um with Jethro Toll and Jeff Beck and stuff, what were the big learnings in that initial part of your career? As far as did you, how far did you have to lift based on what you'd previously done, and what, what, you know, what were the big ticket items for you that you had to learn or overcome?
1: In terms of actual musicality yeah. or a way yeah. to behave, are I've, you talking purely musical? Yeah, terms? well,
0: I, I know that's your interest, and yeah, musical absolutely, and yeah, other behaviour stuff's great as well, but no, the music, the musicality of it
1: um uh, from a pure music uh, sense i uh, i'd grown up um swinging a lot mm-hmm. um i'd grown up a l- I realize i look back on this i realize um i for instance my uncle googie who's a great drummer played with the uh, jimmy smart circus billy smart is it s- s- circus and um he he was he was one of the drummers before the transition to a, a, a backbeat, a heavy backbeat. Mm. Um, it would uh, would uh, use the snare drum as um, a way of accenting, you know, da do do ba 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 I loved that. I loved that um, kind of drumming. I, I I think of it as compositional drumming. Um, from swing and bebop, uh, through to early, early rock, when the the drummers were transitioning out uh, out of the just, uh, just using the snare as a a a, a means of uh, accent to you know providing this uh, regular backbeat. Um, so my uncle, I realised that also my eighth notes swung. All, nearly all the time <laughs> uh, and um, so when I started uh, doing sessions and I particularly noticed this about me when uh, when I I left Jethro Tull and I was doing a, a, an album with a band called um, Forner out in New York and um, uh, you know that band that, that, um, I'll be waiting Oh yeah yeah very album. much
0: that.
1: yeah absolutely so yeah. and um uh, uh, I didn't play on that, but I, I played on a subsequent album and um I, and I was I was doing these replacing bass parts and stuff like that and um the drums had already been laid and the 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 drummer very good drummer, but it, it he wasn't terribly accurate with the click it would drift in and out of of the click, you know it would accelerate into a chorus and then drop back nothing wrong with that uh, you know it was just that was the those were the standards of the time but um but i noticed that first of all the eights that i would play had to be consistent and then if the tempo itself would vary um that if you vary this this the tempo of eights You've got to do it in such a way that, um, that in my mind, has to maintain the equal distance uh, between each eighth note, mm. even though... though- that particular bar may now no longer be at the same tempo as the previous bar, and of course, the worst part of it is the transition from one tempo to another, even if it's slight. So you get the idea of going bum 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 and uh, then on into Jeff Beck and many other sessions that um that the one thing I was uh uh I, I was very um well aware of at least was that I was a natural, so-called natural but learned swinger um but but I learned um assiduously to play even eights yeah uh and sixteenths. And um, and now I, I I now I know I have no natural I have no natural fallback position. Uh, I now no longer play uh, swing eighth notes unless the context or if I'm called for, uh, yeah. upon to do so. But I still feel very comfortable um, uh, playing uh, swing. But I feel very com comfortable playing straight um, eighth notes or. And then with Jeff Beck is when I, certainly in Jethro Tull, there were odd-time signatures, a few odd-time signatures like Black Sunday, or I remember the beginning of songs from the wood. And you know that, the well, actually, it's in the middle of songs from the wood by Jethro Tull. But we used to start it with the very funny time thing and then doing the depends how you count it the seven eight or the nine eight of yeah. uh black sunday um and uh, you know some you can you can count through it as uh, straight and use the the um the seventh eighth note as a just as an accent um but um th- those things i became aware of those were big as you say big ticket items but to become a little bit more analytical about the um placement of notes and uh, va- note value as well um, I, I became much more sensitive to that um, placement and uh, length and then of course by the time that MIDI showed up we all became much more uh, sensitive to velocity um, but my piano tuition and, and um, also I learned a couple of different ways of of fingering um, various scales and um, I was always aware of um what became known in MIDI terms as velocity but um mm. uh and then in piano uh, studies there's a singing tone called cantabile and um understanding uh, the nature of escapement when the the hammer drops drops back from the string uh or 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 you can press on so those those uh, those things uh, became um uh, instead of Instead of being non-cognized, they became very, uh, for a while, um, I would, um, they became cognitive items, things that I would bring to mind and be very aware of, so that, um, so I hoped I was learning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, at risk of severely um, summarising what, what's an amazing career, what were the next, like, to, to me, sitting on the outside, things like Simple Minds was obviously a big one, playing the Nelson Mandela Freedom Concert, stuff like that. Um, what, what are some of the standout memories for you over that subsequent period? And I said I'm severely summarising what yep. a, a number of years there. Well, um, the
1: simple, um, simple Minds was... Um, uh, oh, Really, I I did the Simple Minds because um, I'd been working, actually, uh, not long after I left Jethro Tull, um, I'd been working with a a fellow called Steve Lipson, who uh, was uh, the engineer, or Trevor Horn's engineer, and then became a producer in his own right. And uh, Steve and I had a, a good connection. The connection was... Uh, by the way a lot of these connections as i'm sure other musicians uh, talk about it's, it it in my life barely ever um touch upon uh, being musical connections they're they're always about human connections something some yeah. there's some, uh, there's some um, character or or something about it that, or some shared nuanced aspect of identity that um that um that you gravitate to. And uh, anyway, so it was with Steve Lipson and I'd gone on to do uh, with Steve, um, the three Annie Lennox solo albums. Um, yep. and, um, it's simple. Minds, I can't remember. Uh, it was Simple Minds first or second. I think I'd been working with Steve and he took me up to their Well, he took me out to Whistle to do, to start working out on, um, the real life album with Simple Minds. And, um, yeah. the, the, the truth is, um, the connection, the musical connection, uh, again, was was one thing. It was the joy of music, of course. But the real connection with uh, Simple Minds was, uh, of course, the, the the humans, the squashy biological entities that would be um, <laughs> Charlie and Jim and their desire and their, their authenticity of purpose and, mm. uh, you know, their integrity and... Um, I, I like that very much um, and um, so I did the real-life album then did a uh, as, as as you said I did the Mandela um, uh, when when he was released and um, that I suppose sadly maybe this is not what you'd want to hear but it was simply being uh, uh, being there uh, in some way connected to Nelson Mandela and yeah. it um, uh, was was actually the high point, and that we played, and that Jim and Charlie were really, uh, you know, absolutely authentic about about the reasons they were there uh, for as well. That was that was great. So so it was that night was in simple minds terms was was not about music. That was about um, no. Nelson Mandela, and to to me, all the better for it. Um, but it was an expression of our, our, you know, our understanding and our empathy and so on and so forth. via music, of course, it was. Um, but then, um, I suppose if if you're asking me for musical highlights, and of course we're um, um, short on time, but um, uh, that would be a uh, that would be a musical highlight, but nothing to do with music. And um, or, as I've just expressed, uh, you know, it's 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 a highlight of a of a life that I've lived. That that has had music as, as its um, foundation and foundation, um, and yeah. propellant, but um, uh, here you know this is another great thing. Um, I also uh, think that uh, of course, um, Jethro Tull um, was a huge highlight of my career, but it was at the beginning of my career. It wasn't the zenith of my career. It's no. it's often it, it, I suppose it's there's a, i suppose there's a cult of ian anderson that that grows up around jethro Tull fans, quite understandably so because he is brilliant um you know but it might be it might be offensive um you know to some of them but that that i was i was only ever going to be passing through that wasn't that um, ian and i yeah. had great things together that it wasn't terribly well received by the fans is 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 not the is not ultimately the the thing that i think would be the the quality that both ian and i uh would would take out of the experience um we had a great um a a a very great ian mentored me in so many things and um i I, i'm eternally grateful for that but but it was also important for me to to leave jethro tull and to carry on evolving Mm -hmm. as a musician After that, I suppose the other highlight was uh, playing with Paul McCartney when Richard Niles, who I've discussed before, a great arranger, took me down uh, to Paul's house to Paul was refurbishing um, uh, an album um, uh, which were Wings tracks that hadn't made the records, but he thought were too... Mm. um, At least this is my uh, uh, post-rationalised projected reason why he might do this. Uh, Wings tracks, I had made the the records but but he thought were too good to leave and so we refurbished them and I got to meet Paul and to chat with Paul and um, I said to Paul, because I was such a Beatles fan when I was a young boy of course um, I said to Paul, and this was true I'd written a whole load of songs when I was about 7, let's see I'd be about 6 or 7, beginning of the Beatles 63, and um and uh, my parents had sent this tape down to the Beatles, wherever that was. I didn't know. And sent the tape <laughs> to the Beatles. And uh, anyway, all these years later, and I'm pl- I'm sitting in, uh, with Paul, and he's you know in Hastings, and uh, I said to him, you know, Paul, um, I sent you a tape when I was seven, and I received no reply. It was all my own songs. <laughs> I received no reply. And Paul McCartney went out, um, he'd gone out and it was lunchtime, he'd gone out and he came back and he had a jiffy bag and he went he came back and he said, Peter, you won't believe it, your tape's just arrived Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, of course it wasn't the tape, but uh, uh, but but it doesn't
0: get much better than that But
1: it doesn't get much, well it it can't get any better, And I tell the story of when, uh, actually it was when I was out doing uh, Foreigner in New York and I received a phone call from from Paul's manager of the time, and saying, you know, that Paul was thinking about putting wings back together. Um, would I, would I be interested in the idea of playing keyboards? Uh, you know, if that were the case, or something like it. I was one of two, I think, two people that uh, that was under consideration at the time, and um, I, I I I said, let me let me think about that, please. Um. Uh, of course, those offers don't come twice, and it probably was. A, no, um, I understand. it uh, Probably got off the phone, and went well. He can shove up his arse anyway. Um, <laughs> and um, but the reason I I hesitated because uh, because in a you know in a, this utopian or this idealistic youthful way, I thought perhaps. There is a very real, uh, a real chance that I've experienced the greatest thing that uh, that um, um, a schoolboy could ever, uh, uh, you know, a, an ambition that a schoolboy could ever hope to achieve, which is, after dreaming for so long of getting to play with Paul McCartney, I have done, and it mm. wasn't like like it was a mark on a bedpost or a, or any of those things. It wasn't chalking up this to. You know, to some kind of fatuous, um, um, you know, uh, rite of passage. It it, it was that I thought, I still think, I I got the very best out of that situation simply, simply by hesitating um, at that point. Uh, That may be post-rationalised, but but given that uh, my my own personal um ethos or uh, desires would be to evolve and continue evolving if it's if it's possible to continuously of what I do believe it is uh if it is possible to evolve uh, musically and spiritually throughout a lifetime um then perhaps those were moments that uh that like Miles Davis I got it I loved it I left it behind um, and yeah. um, but there's nothing fatuous or or um, disdainful or contemptuous about when I asked, can I think about it? It was a real, just a real moment of uh, the uh, sliding doors moment.
0: Yeah, that's right, and and it sounds like Peter that unlike the. The kid at the talent quest dressed up as the baby. You're not waking up in the middle of the night going, "Oh my god, I wish I'd gone ahead with wings." No,
1: no, because first of all, uh, he he's got a keyboard player, Paul Wickens, who's absolutely brilliant, and um, uh, and that suits the band terrifically. And Paul has, you know, yeah, he, he hasn't needed me. Um, he, <laughs> he he's never needed anybody, but um, uh, uh, but again there's a there's another three or four possibly five podcasts uh, as to the the difference between um you know this desire and longing one which is the you know you're compelled or you're pushed from behind and the other which you feel drawn to and it's a it's a complex it's a complex um issue and um does you know after all these years of course i'm I, i've had a chance to to uh, think about it and and possibly come up with something a bit rationalized. um, Or that sounds, it sounds, it sounds when I speak about it, it sounds like it's rational. I believe it's irrational. Um, um, But the Greeks had this covered um, uh, with a word called, um, a word, it's called akrasia, when you um, act against your better judgment. But then, uh, even then, I was, I was asking the question, what's, what, what judgment of mine is better? than my judgment mm. uh, you know I, yeah. I don't know if judgment is hierarchical in in that regard i don't know if you reserve your best judgment for the best of moments uh so anyway i could go on
0: yeah no it's a great point point. and um just on love for different artists and, and instruments i know um you you love a little bit of hammond organ to say the least so I was just interested in a bit of a, a sideline there on on Hammond organ, your relationship with it, and um, like I know you've played, for example, um, with Zucchero and, yeah. and others. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit about that for you, as, as far as a bit of a, an experience. You're,
1: you're very well uh, researched, David. Thank you very much for um, uh, for putting that time in. Um, in relation to the Hammond organ, it's 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 the thing that. Um, that a plug-in or a computer and all the rest of it we've talked about it at at great length all of us since days of yore Mm. is that um there's nothing like a great big bit of furniture um uh, you know that you can feel as i said at the beginning of the interview uh, you know some some kind of relationship with that's that has elements of the abstract you know it makes a noise and it's that noise can be made into your idea of what noise is, uh, but also it's 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 a thing that has a a very uh, heavy presence, um, a, almost a gravitation. This is the thing about uh, desire versus longing, or desire as distinct from longing. It has a it has gravitational pull. In the case of a Hammond, it probably has actual gravitational pull due to its <laughs> mass um and um and of course um you know for um, people of my generation there there was always that horrible moment at the end of a night when when I used to cart about a Hammond a hundred um uh, <laughs> at the end of the night asking who'd like to volunteer to help me lift this yeah. sodding sort of thing out you know <laughs> you know which was now two stories up in some some dimly lit club. And um, but my my relationship with the Hammond is that about a a, a thing which is um, a little bit like Wayne Shorter. Not, not I'm comparing myself to Wayne Shorter, but when Wayne Shorter was asked about um, uh, you know why the saxophone, Wayne, and he goes on to say uh, because it was shiny. Uh, I feel <laughs> I feel about Hammond organ why the Hammond organ because it's heavy, um, yes. and there's uh, and there's there's something. Glorious about it. My own Hammond organ in the studio is a nineteen sixty three wax cap uh, C three. Um, oh, yep. It's a glorious thing. It's temperamental. It's it it can have it can be anthropomorph anthropomorphised. Let's get that word right. Anthropomorphised. Um, in that uh, you know one might be tempted to call it a he or a she. It's mm. truculent. Um, it's belligerent, uh, but it's wonderful, and uh, I've uh, I've always loved it. And when, because I le- I learnt to play bass pedals um, when I was young, and the manuals uh, spread as they are with that uh, offset, as well as piano. Um, when when I was called in to by Rustici who was the producer a brilliant guitar player as well, but um, I was called in to play uh, on Zucchero's uh, *Miserere* album. That's the one he did with uh, Pavarotti. Right. And um, Zucchero and Carrado liked the spontaneity that I could, um, uh, th- and I, I enjoyed their enjoyment of my spontaneity because I thought, you know, you can't be spontaneous with people that aren't spontaneous. Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, you have to rely. You know, it's. Um, um, you know, we all have to be in that room. And um, so so uh, I may have to justify that statement. That's That seemed like a universal, <laughs> uh, um, uh, that was a, I may back out of that one. But anyway, they were spontaneous and I was spontaneous. And in fact, um, there was a song on that, that album, uh, Misere, that uh, called Miss Mary. And in the middle of it, I'm playing Hammond and bass pedals. It's a live take, and for the very first time, Zucchero shouted at me, "Take a solo." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so the solo—it's there's a mistake in it, and uh, so the solo that uh, that I played on Miss Mary is the first take. It's live, and it's the very—it's because he shouted, "Take a solo," and in in that way, that uh, software instruments, which are all great, of course. Uh, what I did was the very great thing that a Hammond will allow you to do, when somebody shouts that, I pulled some drawbars out, and I stuck <laughs> my foot flat on the floor, and I started to wail as best as I knew how. Uh, you know, mistakes included. Um, that's uh, That, I think, would uh, give you an insight I- I- into the, the joyous nature of the instrument, or at least the joy that I can derive from sitting in front of one of those—that—that so that doesn't yeah, account yeah. for what an audience uh, makes of it. That I, I can't legislate for that, but uh, I can—I no. can assure you, I can assure you that uh, I, I was having a ball.
0: That's a, that's a great story, um, and I, I do want to um, briefly cover too. Obviously, your songwriting, arranging, and, and composing career, and and one thing that I did notice when doing my research is there's quite not intentionally, obviously, but quite an Australian connection. So between See a uh, Robin Gibb, who I understand we claim is Australian. I know he did come from the UK. Um, you did some work with Australian Idol, I believe, and even with Heather Small with Proud and the 2000 Olympics. There's, there's a bit of an Aussie connection there, I noticed.
1: Yeah, and Tina Arena. Oh,
0: really? Oh, yeah, well, she's an Australian I, I, legend. That's right.
1: I, and uh, I did an album with um, Tina. Um, it was it was way back um, before Niall Rogers was famous again and um <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he produced half of the album and i produced uh, half of the album um i i i'd been working on this uh, uh writing songs with Gina. in fact we we had a hit in france with symphony of life which is a kind of groove uh, item and um typical of myself in relation to other writers it's uh, you know it's the idea of questioning in the second verse of proud for instance you know um you you hear bits of um Sixty-year philosophy of um, <laughs> um, realized to question is how we grow. Um, you know that uh, these are all just uh, parts of my uh, uh, evolution as a thinker and a doer. Um, but it's yeah, the same yeah. with Tina. and, and Aussie connection. Um, um, Aussie, do I like do I like those epithets anymore? I probably don't, but I'm not particularly woke. Um, um, but the Australian connection <laughs> is, is I, I think, um, uh, coincidental. I think, but you can never tell, can you? Because there's a, there, there is a, there there is something, and and with Robin Gibb, I done three Bee Gees albums, I'd gone out to do, um, what was the name of the album they had their first American Top Ten with, I think it was called One or something, I can't remember what was the name of the album oh, yeah, yep. but, uh, and and I went out to work with the Bee Gees, because um, that was another highlight, you know, I got a call from a session agency saying right, go down to Mayfair studio uh, this forthcoming, this is Thursday night forthcoming Monday morning session and I'm going, who with? The Bee Gees <laughs> okay, you you've got to be This is about nineteen eighty eight, and okay, get you wow we yeah. So anyway, I I went down to Mayfair, set my stuff up, and uh, introduced myself to uh, Barry and Robin and Morris, and I loved them. Uh, the, yeah. the, again, it was the the music was lovely, and the band was it was great. It was, the band was. Uh, myself, um, Steve Ferroni on drums, Nathan East on bass, and Tim Cansfield on guitar. Uh, Most of us were in the control room. Steve was in the the live room, uh, obviously, playing the drums. Uh, But Barry and Morris and Robin were also in the control room with us all. So it was just a great, great thing. The people... Uh, couldn't couldn't be better and the music um again i can't legislate for others but um but that experience was extraordinary and i, I began to uh, form a friendship with robin that was about slightly i suppose you could say was you know in, in no in no other context could you say uh, underdog but i i i i believe because robin had um uh i a- apart from his falsetto, he had a real voice, a head voice, and a chest voice that um, mm. that was it was tremulous, but but I thought wonderful, and it wasn't um, it wasn't represented enough, I didn't think, and uh, so there was one of it was one of those things uh, that I I started to want to have Robin, uh, you know, I kind of started to urge Robin to. Keep keep pushing ahead, uh, um, you know, with his own stuff and uh, so on and so forth. Um, and then I I produced and um, played on um, uh, what was it um, Don't Cry Alone. Don't Cry Alone? Yeah, and um, um, on on a, on an album. I mean, it was a fairly difficult experience because Robin, by that time, was starting to uh, become unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I'm very grateful. Uh, that's another thing I'm hugely grateful, having known uh, Barry and Morris and Robin, having witnessed the umpteen arguments that we'd have. They were brothers, they yeah. loved one another, but the boy, oh boy, that was a tempestuous uh, relationship that yeah, yeah. they had. Uh, I often find myself, um, uh, you know, being um yeah uh, very close to having a keyboard jammed up my arse, never mind any, <laughs> <laughs> never mind any of the rest of them. But it was a a, 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 a great a, a great time. I, I have to say. So um, yes, I know that they um they went over to seek their fortune in in Australia and um and that that was highly formative. And they they speak uh, well as you'll know, they speak very fondly uh, of, of that experience. Yeah. Um so um I can't remember who else is um Australian but um
0: so yeah so yeah I mean so, and it just I mean it really shows the extent of your career to someone like Sia comp- is a, a contemporary artist that you've worked with and and how did you find that experience
1: Well it's the same thing and, and and truthfully Sia put me through a ringer uh, it was um uh, <laughs> this was before she'd become um a pop artist and um she would released a, a, a countless a number of albu- albums, uh, all of which were glorious. And um, uh, I w- I had to go and attend, and I say had to because there was a thing that used to happen. I don't I don't do it much anymore. I don't know if it goes on that much anymore, but I'm too much out of the loop. Um, is they would have these writing camps. Uh, the right. the publisher would have a writing camp, and now in this particular writing camp. It was. It was. I think the second or third one I did. Where the first one I did was, the the idea was. I think it was quite noble. The idea, which was the, uh, which is, you go down to uh, this place where there are no telephones, and you put you know twenty songwriters in this huge old mansion with no mm. uh, no uh, no communication to the outside world, and uh, they each form into groups of three. I guess there were twenty one and uh, groups of three and each day they would go and write a song but there would be no technology all we had were dictaphones and uh, yes. a piano and a guitar or a guitar that was a hideous experience um and um one that i enjoyed very much and um uh, i i i on the at the end of that particular uh visit i i wrote the um and who will forget uh, this one uh i wrote two chickens fighting um <laughs> which was the, I'd recorded, we couldn't get anywhere the day that I had two other people in my room trying to write a song and nobody liked any, anything that was happening. So I recorded uh, two chickens that just so happened to be fighting outside my window. And, um, <laughs> that's what we performed that night, albeit to, um, to a lovely background of, of, uh, altered chords. Um, but on, on the second or third, um, on the second or third uh, writing camp, I met Sia, but she put me through it. She came into my room, and by this time we could have, I had my Pro Tools rigged down there and keyboards, and uh, there was myself, and Cliff, whose second name I've forgotten now, very great. Oh, jeez, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten his second name. Perhaps you have to. And Sia. And Sia, I think, regarded both Cliff and I, uh, but especially me, as an industry hack, um, yeah, y- uh, you know, I'd I'd done all this and I'd complied and I'd uh, I'd conformed with all the normative standards of what constituted songwriting of the day and come up with these, you know, what she would have considered then to be, you know, these inane, innocuous uh, things, just on the basis of being a rollover, or at least that she she gave me that <laughs> d- impression. Um, but she and I and Cliff went on to write a, a what I think is a, v- a very beautiful song, and she was having a moment, uh, uh, you know, and the song's called You Have Been Loved For Somebody Good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we wrote that, and it got done, but it wasn't till after we'd written the song that Sia and I made a connection, and the, it was the oddest connection, but it was one that I like very much, and it refers to, um, uh, what I talked about before, uh, how did I connect with Sia? Not musically, not lyrically, yeah, but I think we did a good, uh, a, a lovely song. Uh, but that wasn't the connection. Our connection uh, happened later on that night when we were both found to be great fans of interpretive jazz dancing, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, and both went on to try and ex- uh, explain through the through the gift of dance uh, concepts such as. Um, I've left home, but I think I may have left the oven on, and a summer's day, um, <laughs> um, and that's when C and I actually uh, um, connected with one another. That that connection um, it, it didn't stand the test of time because uh, clearly these these kinds of things. Are forced and false anyway. I mean the songwriting yeah. camps, and uh, they they are understandably and probably should be ephemeral. Although they can give rise to further collaborations uh, in ways that you didn't expect. Um, but uh, with S- Sia I um, I I was a was kind of uh, shocked when I, I heard um, you know um the uh, the vocal on Titanium, which was absolutely brilliant, of course and the song was you know i mm-hmm. think it was great but it was but it was absolutely not the the um the uh, the frame of mind that sia uh, certainly at the beginning of the day regarded me um which is disappoint- <laughs> disappointing because i think you know these are these are the problems with perception and um and prejudice yeah bias and so on. We, we know all of these things. I I, I I might not have gotten the best out of Sia, but she certainly didn't get the best out of me, that's for sure.
0: There you go. Yeah, no, interesting story. And um, just on interpretive jazz dance to segue to one man choirs and, and going back to <laughs> Heather Small. So, I mean, there's a great story there. Well, it's not just a story, it's a truth. About how you have essentially pulled off twenty years as a one man choir on a, a big hit from Heather Small. That's right. Because I worked out it's roughly twenty years old this year, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, um, yeah. It, it, this is this is quite a thing, and um, I can reveal now because it's um, it's it's so long. I often show up in uh, record. I, I never used to do this, but I I, I think it's it's fun and it, it's good that um, I, I often show up as credited as the St. Bibiana Choir. <laughs> um saint bibiana is the patron saint of mental disorders and headaches oh, and there you go. Uh, and um and <laughs> not to disparage uh, you know mental disorders not at all no 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 um um and not making light of it at all but um i, I often wouldn't um claim uh, you know having uh, sung anything on on any record because um uh, <clears throat> it's because my this is the long discussion uh, uh you know uh the concepts of personal identity and um persistence of identity and so on and so forth but um but um i didn't perceive myself as as a singer but i've often thought how do people think i write a song if i don't sing something to them uh you know when they come into the room and go well what, have you got any ideas and i just play a few doodles on a piano might have said might have served me better right enough but um um <laughs> when it came to heather i'd been singing backing vocals on tons of stuff it's not that the the and it's not that they may have been the deciding factor but in 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 the case of heather it was simply that i had to because halfway through the day when heather and i were writing that song we got a phone call from her manager saying have you got anything there's a Peugeot ad that are looking for songs. Have you got anything? And we said, well, we're doing this thing. And um, so so once we'd finished uh, singing the song, which had a gospel flavor, and, and um, Heather uh, left, I went on to do, you know, just to mock up, you know, the the idea of a gospel choir uh, singing this thing. And um, when, when I did the record properly, I did get in uh, Lance Ellington and uh, Tommy Blaze, and who are great singers, and they did sing on top of that that choir. But in in fact, the bulk of the the sound of the choir of proud is is, is me is uh, singing. And what I, what I couldn't get rid of in the final production was the the desire to make it happen. Which was from the, you know, that's got a metaphysical substance. I know that mm-hmm. there'll be philosophers around here. But if the philosophers are listening to this, I'm sorry, I may be a Cartesian dualist. Um, I, 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 I may believe, to a certain extent, there's a metaphysical substance to the uh, to the, the the statement of the uh, sum is greater than the parts, and um, I. I uh, y- I think there was something to the desperation <laughs> of trying to get that to work. I lost mm. my voice doing that, uh, singing. Uh, it was like uh, probably there's two times. There's probably six, six of each each um, a part of the harmony. Um, probably done. Uh, what's it? It's about you know, probably ten parts to the harmony maybe um, yeah. and then I, I did it four four times over so the, I don't know what that would be um, you know, 40 times
0: Enough to lose your voice Enough, as you said. Well I
1: showed up at the doctor, <laughs> he was brilliant though I, 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 he was absolutely brilliant because um, he brought me back down to earth and I went, look, um, I've lost my voice, he looked at my throat and I said I, I, and he said, how would you do that I said, I was singing and, he, and, and um, he I said, so what can I do and he said, stop singing I mean, accurate but I mean, uh, I, I would have preferred Tommy Cooper to, to have told me that um, that's uh, right. but, uh, but yeah, but it's the truth <laughs> anyway, I didn't stop singing when I went on to do a, a Joe Cocker album produce a Joe Cocker album I was doing the backing vocals for Joe Cocker and um, to unite Joe's uh, a vocal sound which was very distinct with a mm. with a with a choir, I had to I, I had to sing with that the you know what Steve Lipson calls an angry voice <laughs> <laughs> <thing>. and um <laughs> uh, and so anyway uh, suffice it to say two days later I'm I'm back in the surgery and uh, going uh eh, w- what's your advice now it's still the same stop singing, yeah, stop, stop singing, singing like Joe Cocker you nutcase, <laughs> as if I could,
0: oh that's amazing. <laughs> now, Peter, we, we're going to wrap up with two questions that we always ask, and I have a feeling I have difficulty narrowing both these down, but one we all always ask is the greatest train wreck. So in your case, it could be on stage, it could be in production. What's the biggest train wreck you've ever had, now, musically or technically? It's,
1: it's, it's, it's very, very clear. It's the, it's the best one ever. And it was the reason... That 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 first instilled the idea in my head that uh, with Jethro Tull I was going no further, and it was the last <laughs> day of uh, I I I talk about it. it was the um look before the caveat being uh, that Ian Anderson was really struggling with his voice and he pulled off an entire what eighty four day tour. And put his voice into such jeopardy just to keep this show on the road, and it's the mm-hmm. mark of a, a a brilliant man that he would do this. However, yeah. um, uh, however, it was three nights to go. We were at the Universal Amphitheatre in LA, and on the first night, when we <clears throat> when we played um, a, a tune for Jethro Tull fans, they'll know this tune. For those that don't, um, uh, I'll sing the riff. Um, it's a tune called Hunting Girl. And uh, the riff goes... Now, when I do that sh sound, Ian would Ian would press a button, which was a timed tape uh, sound of a riding crop being whacked over, I think, <laughs> Dave Pegg's bum or Ian's bum or something. Oh, yeah. Ian would take a riding crop to Dave Pegg's bottom. And uh, uh, to the accompaniment of the sound of the whacking sound of a, a, a riding crop. And um, anyway, on this night, the the uh, brilliant uh, American drummer um, Don Perry took, understandably, took the took the opportunity to demonstrate his prowess in a po- polyrhythmic fill um, in in the break of the riff of Hunting Girl. Sadly, uh, in the audience <clears throat> was uh, the winners of the uh, Lap of Luxury contest, the radio contest of the day, that had shown up in the front row and were uh, watching all of this happen as uh, as great Jethro Tull fans, whilst rolling up a doobie. Um, and um, <laughs> uh, and and also it was in the audience was uh, the Keyboard Magazine. Uh, correspondent because that year I'd come second in the best newcomers in the... Um, oh, yeah. uh, in, which kind of gives lie to the fact, a little bit at least to the fact that um, that um, Jethro Tull fans didn't like me and Jethro Tull. Um, <laughs> uh, but I can understand why they wouldn't, of course. And um, uh, Anyway, so the riff goes on. Uh, da-da-da-da, and Don embarks upon this huge... M- fantastic polyrhythmic fill (laughs) um ian understandably and i know this about singers they're not really they're not going to be standing about counting you know um they're out there entertaining and uh, ian lost his place and he pressed the uh, riding crop in the wrong place and um And then he came back in and he was about, I I don't know, it's it's one of these really horrid, very difficult to calculate unless you were a fan of um, uh, Stockhausen or Schoenberg or or perhaps uh, some of the tabla, (laughs) conical of Indian um, tabla speak. But um, he came in about, I I would think, about seven-sixteenths away from where reality was taking place. And um, the band had managed to come in the right time. So we carried on playing Hunting Girl. Ian was in the wrong place. And um, but Ian being Ian uh, and understandably had to continue on as if he was in the right place. Uh, And um, and so consequently, the band uh, as individuals began to try and accommodate where Ian was in the bar (laughs) one by one. And uh, this this dreadful, just it was a sad. What's what's the technical term for it? Oh yes, pile of shit took place. <laughs> and um, uh, and <clears throat> but Ian, I followed him. The follow spot, the big you know the super trooper followed Ian off. He jumped over the monitors into the audience. The follow spot went with him. and I could see. Um, Accoutrement and flutes flying about, and uh, and tins of <laughs> tins of dope and tobacco flying up into the air. Uh, Ian came back on the stage. Now the band was limping along in in a kind of a doing a, a kind of a five sixteenths version of the riff of Hunting Girl by this time, and he he called the the whole thing to a, a halt. So loud he blew his voice up. Uh, and we stopped, and um, he w- turned round and berated the audience, and in particular um, the the people in the front row who were smoking these doobies that were aggravating his throat. And um, uh, so he he ran up to me and asked me to do the keyboard solo, and they and then all of the band departed the stage. And uh, the keyboard solo was, um, and I'm sure people will empathise with this. I had a prepared thing with a sequence that would uh, that I would play, and I'd play too, and I'd come out with a handheld and blah 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 with my cape flying and all the rest of it. It was it was all going to be proper, but because it, because Ian said just play something, uh, I didn't have time to prepare it, so uh, I, I started to play. Guess what? And people, I'm sure, uh, empathise with this. Uh, what spinal spinal tap called Jazz Odyssey? I hope you like our direction. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, our bass player wrote this, so uh, I I started to play Jazz Odyssey, and um, and it was it was went on too long. I can't say it was particularly bad, but it went on too long. I don't know I was I, 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 my heart my blood pressure must have been up to 400 over nine yes. and um, uh, and uh, anyway they uh, Ian they all left the stage and they eventually coerced Ian to come back onto stage and we played the a short and <laughs> a truncated version of the gig which was shambolic in itself. We had to shorten down because he couldn't sing, Aqualung, my friend, day. don't you start up. Just impossible. He'd, he'd blown his voice yeah. up completely. And I, I had real empathy for him, but it was so shambolic. And his his complete, the the you know, just the complete failure to just, it was a failure in all sorts of ways. Um, yes. I, I, and... Um, I look back on it now. Of course, I can put. Of course, it's funny now because I'm going Spinal Tap and and I'm taking the rap. That's but in right. truth, but in truth, Keyboard Magazine didn't come and interview me that night. Uh, Ian, uh, <clears throat> just I think uh, didn't do the following two nights in the Universal Amphitheatre. I understand why, of course, but it needn't have been like that. And um, it, it, I almost, I knew it was coming. Before I knew something like this was going to happen because Don Perry had said, "Well, Pete, we've made it to the last gig," and I said, "Don, you you don't know, you don't know, (laughs) uh, you don't know what's what can happen here." And I'm telling you, anything can happen here. Now, I'm not being critical of of, of Ian. I think we were all found wanting uh, under those circumstances. But it was uh, the biggest train wreck that I've ever been involved in, and it's <laughs> uh, it, it, and if a train wreck, which I think you know, literally and figuratively means that it means that your career can be derailed, uh, then that's what happened to me because I decided that was that was the end of that. Um, from my perspective, I I was going to be uh, I was going um, to be getting onto some other tracks. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, after that. But um, I, I, please don't misunderstand me. I I'm no, no not at all. Grateful.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then um, the one that every guest hates is the Desert Island Discs question, Peter. Five I, albums you couldn't live without. I prepared. Yeah, <laughs>
1: good. Um, I put them in chronological order, and I've tried to tell the truth uh, about um, – uh, about you know the the you know these are meaningful to me uh, because they were also the albums that made the difference. You know it's not just like you know when you you know what's the put your top five books that you've read. You know and somebody's going to have of course you know Nietzsche. Well I did uh, Nietzsche yes. and, and and blah blah blah. <laughs> um, so uh, in chronological order and um, uh, they are of course, Sergeant Pepper. There there could. The, oh, yeah. the, and I'll, when I come to the end of this, uh, David, I'll, I'll justify my choices as well um, from a, from one particular uh, standpoint. But the first one is um, Sergeant Pepper for all the very obvious reasons, and for yes. reasons that are not so obvious. Then, because I was a, a keyboard player, I I, um, uh, I gravitated to to those things that would feature virtuoso keyboard players and rock players. Um, uh, you know, the burgeoning sweet spot for, a, you know, um, a then, what would it be? I can't remember, six, 15, 16, 17. And um, so the next thing up would be the the core blimey among Us brilliance of Tarkas by um, oh, yeah. ELP in 1971. Yep. Um, then in 72, it would be Can't Buy a Thrill, uh, which is Steely Dan, because by that time I was playing... Oh, yeah. Uh, things like uh, "Do It Again," and um, I, I went on to play loads of Steely Dan things. Love, love the chords, the composition, the individuality. Mm. You know, so much about it. Um, yeah. In '75, there was a there was an album that that it was incredibly, and I've looked back on it o- on many occasions. I wish I could communicate this directly to him because he's been such a, a fantastic uh, influence and. Um, a guiding light uh, for me certainly was at that time. The album's called Forest of Feelings and it's by David Sanchez um, Oh, yes, oh, yep. just great. Um, and so, what's that? And then, of my five albums, and of course, I've had to you know miss out so many things Herbie Hancock, um, um, George Duke, you know, for keyboard players and so on and so forth, but. Um, the next one would be um, um, 73. Uh, would be Inner Visions by um, Stevie Wonder because this was the oh, yeah. this was the the fact that I that I uh, write songs. Uh, I like um, the idea of popular songs as certainly as uh, when espoused uh, or uh, evinced by Stevie Wonder. Also, I loved Stevie Wonder's drumming. Uh, I I mean, apart from the brilliant, I mean, you know, forget it, singing, oh, my God, piano playing, oh, my God, composition, Mm. oh, help, Uh, the drumming, living for the city, oh, for heaven's sakes, so um, so Inner Visions. And then at the very, very uh, pinnacle uh, for me uh, that's a a lifetime, changed my life, could not have lived without him and then it would be um black market uh, by weather report gotcha um
0: yeah.
1: that was um uh, you know that that was seventy six but that was the um that was thing I was going to say the, the 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 perspective that I have about this and it's I was reading um a, a Joe Joe's quote about uh, it was about when jacko auditioned um when they were doing, um, what was the song, Um, Cannonball, and Jackal came to audition, so-called audition for uh, Weather Report. But um, at the time, uh, Zawinow was quoted as saying, um, you know, about the whole thing about Jackal playing out and, hey, man, don't play that shit on my song and all the rest of it. And he would say something like, uh, he said, we're a group, not a bunch of individual musicians. And these are Hmm. the things that I think that all of these albums Maybe with, of course, with the exception of um, Stevie Wonder, who yeah. you know is, is is of course unique. But that album had players on it that that played as a band that sounded like a band. That same with David Sancho's, uh, the 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 band that was Steely Dan, the band that was ELP, the band that was that was the Beatles. These these were great individuals. But this metaphysical substance of the sum is greater than, uh, uh, than the parts. Um, um, how extraordinary. Um, and I'm yeah. very grateful to have lived in a time that, um, you know, lived in this time. And also there's another thing about it, which is, I think, don't want to sound like an old furry dairy, but I'm missing from popular song now, is there's there's an energy and a desire, I talked about it before, a desire, a desire, to, a need to get this on record somehow, a real zesty something. Um, um, when Zawinow was talking about, um, for instance, uh, Narada Michael Walden um, on playing on the actual title cut of uh, Black Market, um, because it starts off with Chester Thompson playing the drums, uh, but then switches. You can hear the switch. It's, it does switch to Narada Michael Walden later on. Uh, and uh, both are brilliant of course, but the the zest and the energy and the desire, those are the things that that uh, have typified anything that I'm I'm drawn to. Of course, I love cerebral. Uh, of course I, I love the beautifully crafted, I love the spontaneous, so on and so forth. It's the energy. Punk brought energy. Um, to to the whole scene in the late 70s, but, um, but but I'm not, but I wasn't a huge fan of the music, but mm-hmm. it was that zesty, visceral, human um, uh, quality that uh, I so love about the My Desert Island.
0: I think that's a beautiful way to to um, to end the Desert Island is because, and I think it also reflects your career as far as zest and desire, and and it's it's obviously um you've applied both those throughout your career and um in the many more years hopefully to come um with with your ongoing career i I mean i feel like i've got a thousand more questions and you may be the first one peter to be asked back for a second episode well uh, please do Um, because
1: i've got a thousand and two answers yeah
0: that's right (laughs) so no I, i can't can't thank you enough for the time today it's been absolutely brilliant and yeah we definitely will be in touch but um yeah, keep safe, and um, we'll hopefully talk again soon. I hope
1: so, David, and and thank you very much for asking me. And uh, and of course, uh, I understand uh, the situation can is uh, you know tenuous, um, you know, for for all of us. And um, uh, I do hope you can stay safe and stay well.
0: So there we have it. And without a word of a lie, I think you could get Peter on a podcast for three episodes and still barely scratch the surface of what's been an amazing career. So, yeah, huge thank you again to Peter for taking part. And um, when we do do the rounds again with different guests, Peter will be first on the list, I can assure you. Um, the Keyboard Chronicles will be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Um we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles or on Twitter at the keyboard CHR one. If you like good old fashioned email, then as always do drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. If you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. That's at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Um, Yes, so most importantly, thanks to you for listening and we hope to see you back here next episode.